John chapter 15 and verse 4. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. So for the next few minutes tonight and maybe in some uh, weeks to come in various areas, I want to talk to us about this subject, abiding in his word, abiding in his word. Would you set your Bible down or close your device and ask God to talk to us over the next few moments from his word. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your anointed word that is forever established. It is our roadmap to your purpose in our life. God, without it, we are nothing, for it is you. And God, if we're going to abide in you, we have to abide in your word and in your love. And so, God, we make that commitment. We look to your word, and we thank you for that. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, help us to receive it, to respond, and to live it out. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Thank you for standing in worship. Give honor to Pastor Johns and pray you would continue to pray for him as he is preaching in Arkansas. That God will speak to those people uh, from his word. The context of our passage tonight is Jesus' final discourse with his disciples just prior to his betrayal and crucifixion. They've eaten the Passover meal together, which we call the Last Supper. Jesus has instituted the Lord's Supper or communion, as we see in Luke 22. And then following that meal, John records in chapter 13 that Jesus arises and taking a towel and a basin of water, he begins to wash their feet, providing this startling example for his expectation that they love and serve one another as he has loved and served them. Then in John chapter 14, Jesus launches into this final summarizing teaching conversation with his disciples that leads him up to his prayer at Gethsemane and then his subsequent arrest. And since we're talking about tonight abiding in his word, I think it's important to highlight some of Jesus' vital teaching here in chapter 14 that leads up to this parable of the vine and branches in chapter 15. In verse 1 of chapter 14, of course, a passage that many of us are familiar with, and you probably have heard if you have been in a Christian church or an apostolic church very long. He said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so... I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So Jesus kind of launches into this final discourse by just setting aside all of the stress and the worry and the uh, intimidation that they were feeling kind of picking up and gathering that this was really the end. So he just sets all that aside and lets them know that, listen, you have a hope that is eternal. So don't be troubled and don't be afraid. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I'm going to come back 
And if I come back where I am there, you may be also. That is, was their hope. And ladies and gentlemen, that is our hope. That no matter how bad it could ever get on this earth, in this space that we call time, my hope is anchored in a God who we are with, I will spend eternity, and I can't even comprehend what that means. Amen. In a place called heaven where there is no pain, suffering, tears, and where there will only be celebration in the presence of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Jesus then begins to affirm, as he's done throughout his ministry, his deity. And John is, of course, quick to pick up on this part of his conversation with his disciples because John, from the very first verse of his gospel, has relentlessly sought to demonstrate that Jesus Christ, the deity of Jesus Christ, and to affirm that He is God manifested in the flesh. So in chapter 14, verse 6, John captures this part of the conversation where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know Him and have seen Him. Pretty clear, right? With the illumination of the Spirit and a proper perspective of Scripture, very clear. Philip, though, is a little slow. And so Jesus reinforces what He just said. Philip said to Him, Lord... Show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus had just said, you now know him and have seen him. Philip was uh, in la-la land at that moment, as all of us are apt to be at times. And so Jesus kindly responds again to his question. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works." Jesus Christ here in this final passage indisputably declares again that in a manner that He has done throughout His ministry, He just brings it all together to declare that He was the express revelation of Yahweh or the God of the Old Testament to humanity. That He was the very life of God. That His life was the very life of God. That He was both holy and completely God, and He was at the same time holy and completely man. He was God expressly revealed to humanity. He was Yahweh of the Old Testament now revealed to them. That's what the Gospels declare. That's what the whole of Scripture declares. And Jesus, in those precious last moments with His disciples, wants them and us to know It is without mystery. It's already been solved. I'm telling you the mystery of godliness. 
I am God, the Father manifested in the flesh. Amen. Now Jesus, though, begins to prepare them for the imminent outpouring of the Holy Spirit that's going to happen after His resurrection and His ascension. Notice again, as He's talking about the Comforter or the Helper or the Holy Spirit, that He affirms, again, the oneness of His Godhead. And specific to our subject tonight, notice how the essentiality of obedience to the Word is important to experiencing the life of the Spirit. Jesus says, if you love me, in verse 15, keep my commandments. Now, that is in red, and it is in our Bibles in multiple locations, and we have to look to the Scriptures as our authority and as our roadmap. There are a lot of professing Christians who are running around in this current hour, and they are celebrating the love of Jesus Christ. But Jesus said, If you love me, then keep my commandments. You can't separate the two. They are intricately joined together. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and He will give you another helper or comforter that He may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. So this comforter, this helper, the Holy Spirit, this is not a third being. This is not another who will proceed from the Father in my name. This is going to be me. I am with you and I will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. I will not send another to you. The Father will not send another to you. I will come to you. Verse 21. He who, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. It was important in this hour. It was important in the gospel writer's hour of the early church. It is important in 2015 still today. If we say we love Him and we profess to be abiding in Him, then we must abide in His Word. And He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love Him and manifest myself to Him. Judas, not Iscariot, not the traitor or the betrayer, said to Him, Lord, how is it that You will manifest Yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Again, he's talking to the Jews. He's talking to his disciples. He's already emphatically made clear, I and the Father are one, and the Spirit that, I, that I'm going to send is going to be me coming and living in you. So the Father and me, we will live in you because we are indivisibly and absolutely 
one. But notice here again, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. That is three times in this passage that Jesus is hammering home this point. That if you're going to profess to abide in me, then you must abide in my word. And if you do not abide in my word, then you really don't love me. Amen. So now Jesus kind of changes tactics and he provides his disciples in chapter 15 with a parable or an allegory of a vine and branches and resulting fruit to vividly illustrate what he has in essence been teaching for three and a half years and certainly been reminding them over the last few minutes of his discourse. His use of a parable, of course, is not unusual. It's found throughout his ministry in the Gospels. And his use of a parable with an agriculture background of a vine bearing fruit is not surprising. It was common as a teaching point in the ancient world, even among other religions and other cultures. And so, talking about a vine and the branches and the resulting fruit and the care of that vine was something that was familiar to his audience. Jesus starts and tells them, I am the true vine, and my Father, who is me, is the vine dresser or the gardener or the farmer. This is the last of John's seven I am statements that Jesus gave, which John included again throughout the passages of his gospel to affirm that Jesus was Yahweh revealed to humanity. When Jesus said, I am, his audience understood that he was talking about the I am that I am who entered into covenant with Abraham and gave his law through Moses. And notice that, however, in this passage, Jesus says, I am the true vine. That unlike Israel, which oftentimes in the Old Testament was likened to a vine, but always in the context of a vine that did not bear fruit, a vine that was unproductive or unfruitful. Here, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and in me, my followers will bear much fruit. Further, Jesus is teaching us through this story and teaching his disciples And John is bringing to our attention that now those who are grafted into Christ, who is the true vine, they are now the ones who are in a saving covenant with God, not those who are merely born a Jew. So whereas in their mind or in Israel's mind, the vine represented them and their birthright through Abraham, John is using Jesus' teaching And what Jesus was trying to say is that I am now the true vine. And when you are grafted into me, unlike national Israel, you will bear forth fruit because I am the true vine. Verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. God is always at work among His people. He cares about the health 
of his church. We're talking about abiding in his word and we're looking to the story or the parable that Jesus used to help us understand why this is the roadmap that we live our life by. And so because God cares about his church, because he's the vine dresser, because he's the gardener, he does two things as a gardener. One is he cuts off and removes every branch who refuses to bear fruit. Every branch who does not dwell in him, every branch who refuses to abide in his word, that branch is cut off and removed. But he's also at work doing a second job, and that is he prunes the fruitful branches so that they may bring forth even a greater yield and a greater harvest and bring forth much fruit. So you can either be cut off or you can be pruned, but you're going to be cut by the Lord Jesus Christ in your walk with Him. It's just a matter of how deep and how far and how severe. I want to be one who's found fruitful, and yes, that means He's going to prune me, but not to to hurt, not to remove, not to abandon, not because He's forsaken me, but he prunes me so that I can be everything God's called me to be. There are seasons he leads me through. There are times of struggle. There are times of temptation. There are times of uncertainty that God is pruning me and preparing me so that I can fully be who he's called me to be and live out his purpose for my life and be and bring forth much fruit. But you can also be pruned and severely pruned to the point that if you resist that, if you yield to the temptation, if you uh, 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 just give up in the day of battle, if you become distracted from your purpose and you withdraw yourself from relationship with Jesus Christ, then he's going to come through. You're not going to loiter on the vine very long before he will cut you off and he will remove you from his garden because every ounce of energy is focused on bearing fruit. Amen. Verse 3. Now he kind of steps back and he, he comforts them with what he just said. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. In other words, I'm talking about I'm the true vine. I'm talking about cutting off or pruning back. But I want you to know that you are already pruned and you are already purified. Why? Because you've been with me and you have heard my word. And so because you are abiding with me, And because you're abiding in my word, you don't have to live in fear of an axe of judgment. If you're living for God because you think he's holding a baseball bat and he's ready to hit you over the backside of the head and he's ready to send lightning down from heaven, you have a poor image of God and you may not be in full relationship with him. Because when you are in full relationship with Him and you're abiding in His Word, you have a peace and a joy and a presence to understand. I'm not worried about an act of judgment. I understand that I am abiding in Him and He in me. Verse 4, our text. Abide in me and I in you. 
As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Abide in me, and I in you. What was Jesus trying to get across to them? What was he trying to teach you and I? in this parable of the vine and the branches, that He is the true vine. And He commands His disciples, Abide in Me and I in you. Well, in light of His discourse in chapter 14 about the coming Comforter and the context of even the Gospel of John, we understand that to abide in Him is related, first of all, to His Holy Spirit living inside of us. How do we abide in Him? And how does He abide in us? Through, it is through this fact. He abides in us through His Spirit, which is a mutual indwelling of us in Him and He in us. The baptism of the Holy Ghost. God Almighty, the Creator of all, who came and revealed Himself in flesh and died and gave Himself for our redemption, He now dwells in us and by His indwelling Spirit, we can abide in Him and He abides in Him. There is this mutual union. There is this mutual relationship between us and God Almighty. Jesus here, though, is not simply referring to a moment in time. He's not referring to merely the initial moment that you and I would put our trust in Jesus Christ and come into covenant with Him by obedience to His Word. Instead, He is letting us know through the present tense of verse 5 and 6, we see that what He is saying clearly suggests that He is talking about continuing to abide in Him, continuing to dwell in His presence, continuing to seek after Him above all, just as branches are always dependent on the vine. You and I are always dependent on the life-giving flow of the Holy Spirit. If you think that you can successfully navigate life and be prepared for Christ's return and be apart from or cut off from the work of the Holy Spirit, you will be greatly fooled and terrorized in that last day of God's return. The only way that you and I can abide in Jesus Christ and be prepared for His soon return is that we must be connected intricately and intimately connected to the life-giving flow of the Holy Spirit. We are always dependent upon Him. As sons and daughters who walk in covenant with Jesus Christ, we are dependent upon His Holy Spirit. We derive our very life from Him. We bear fruit only 
because of Him. You may have memorized mechanics. You may know how to shout. You may know how to dress. You may know how to answer all the right questions. But if you are not abiding in the Holy Spirit, you will be cut off from Him. You are not His Son or His daughter because He is the vine and we are the branches, and the moment the branch is cut off from the vine, it has no life. But when we're connected to the vine, we are alive, and we will be alive forevermore. Abide in me, and I in you. We are dependent on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why it is important that we walk in the Spirit. That's why it's important that we not grow cold or distant in our relationship with Jesus Christ. That's why it's important that we examine ourselves in the mirror of God's Word or in the mirror of His Holy Spirit. Because if my praise is dampened, if my worship has has declined, if my faithfulness is waffling, if my desire to be what God wants me to be is waffling or, or, or inconsistent, then I need to make sure that I plug myself back into the life-giving flow of the Holy Ghost. I cannot do this alone. I am not righteous in my own deeds. I am only made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ, and I am only prepared for the rapture by His Spirit that dwells in me. And if His Spirit does not dwell in me, I am none of His. It doesn't matter what I profess. It doesn't matter what each of you think. I've got to make sure that I am connected to the Holy Spirit, that I am abiding in Him, and He is abiding in me. So if you're comfortable with carnality, you need a spiritual checkup because you are maybe how and why are you can you claim that you're abiding in him yet you're living in carnality you're either ruled by the spirit or you're ruled by the flesh jesus said you must abide in me and i must abide in you jesus then reveals even more about what it means to abide in him and the resulting fruit of that mutual union verse 7 If you abide in me and my words abide in you and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. That's a promise. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, you're walking and obedient to my word, then you're going to be empowered to pray effectual prayers, kingdom prayers, and they shall be answered. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Fruit here has wide connotations, spiritual fruit, the fruit of being a witness and seeing a harvest of souls, the fruit of the Spirit as Paul would illuminate to the Galatians, the fruit of our love for Him, the fruit of joy that we may talk about next week, the fruit of powerful prayer that you will bear forth much fruit. Verse 9, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments. There's a lot of ifs in in this conversation. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. You want to abide in my love? You want to celebrate the love of Jesus Christ? 
This is how you abide in my love. You keep my commandments. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. I am your perfect example. The man Christ Jesus submitted Himself to walk obediently to the will of the Father. And as the man Christ Jesus, He is our perfect example. And as He represented the love of God and was the love of God, so when we walk in obedience to our Heavenly Father, we represent and abide in the love of the Father. Verse 11, These things... I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. If serving God is drudgery and if life is dreary, maybe you're not abiding fully plugged in to the vine. Because when you abide with Him and He abides in you and you obey and abide in His Word and His love, then you have this promise that His joy will remain in you and that your joy may be full. Can you say amen? So, throughout all of this teaching and throughout the Scriptures as a whole, we can see that God's love for humanity is unconditional. Does God love everybody? Yes. Does God love the saint and the sinner? Yes. Does it matter which sin the sinner is engaged in? No. God's love for humanity is unconditional. Paul said God demonstrates His own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. However, God's love is unconditional, but His saving covenant with humanity is not unconditional. John said, or Jesus said in John 3 and 5, I say unto you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So God's love is whosoever will has an invitation coming to me. And the love of God has already made possible the, 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 the ability to come into covenant with Him. But if you're going to come into covenant with this loving God, there are conditions. Yes, we are certainly saved by grace, as Paul would say to the Ephesians, that we are saved by God's grace through faith. But that saving faith is initiated by obedience to Jesus Christ. In other words, when we enter into a saving covenant with God Almighty, it is conditional on our obedient response to His command. And if we're going to abide or continue in covenant with the Lord Jesus Christ, then it is conditional on us abiding or continuing in obedience to His commandments. You cannot separate the two. If I abide with Him, then I abide in His commandments. And if I am in covenant with Him, that means I am living according to the terms of the covenant as given by His Word. Does that make sense? So these are the truths. This is the idea. This is what Jesus is trying to hammer home to his disciples and hammer home to you and I. Good oneness Pentecostals. Many who have 
a long tenure of serving the Lord. Some who have just come into the faith. But Scripture and Jesus through His Word is trying to help us to understand. If you abide in me and I abide in you, that means that you are abiding in my Word. And the eternal significance of that can never be overstated. If you just kind of just slop that off, that really doesn't mean anything to you. You are missing something that is eternally significant. Because if he, His Word is not in you, and if you're not living in obedience to His Word, you are not prepared for eternity. Because you are not living in covenant with Him in, in your disobedience. But when you come and faithfully come into covenant with Jesus Christ and you align yourself to His purpose and to the roadmap of His Word, you can live with peace, you can live with power, you can live with joy that is found by abiding in Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus earlier lays this foundation in John 8, chapter 31. What is Jesus talking about? Relentlessly teaching. If He's relentlessly saying the same thing, then maybe we ought to pay attention that living for Him is synonymous with keeping His commandments and persevering in obedience to His Word. John 8 and 31, He gives a similar warning. If you abide in My Word, you are My disciples indeed. He's speaking to people who believe on Him and He wants them to understand. If you abide in My Word, you are My disciples indeed. As we saw earlier in chapter 14, Jesus has laid this same foundation. If you love me, keep my commandments. Verse 21 and 14, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. So this spiritual and practical truth that I am reminding, I hope I am reminding us about tonight, is that if you and I are going to abide in Jesus Christ, it must be more than a profession. It must be evidenced by the practice of our obedience to His Word. What I say has to be evidenced by what I do, and what I do has to be in alignment to His Word. David powerfully penned these words in 119 and 11, the psalm. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. In 105 of that same psalm, same psalm. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. This is the road map. This is the answer to every question. This is the defense of every attack. He would write in Psalms 19 and 10, More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. You see the Scripture, the Bible, the Word of God is God's inspired, infallible roadmap for how we come into a saving covenant with Him. It is also a roadmap for how we live an empowered life of divine purpose and a life that produces spiritual fruit for His glory and the advancement of His kingdom. This is the inspired, infallible Word of God. It is our roadmap. It 
is our sword. It is our defense. It is how we navigate navigate the uncertain days that you and I live in. We abide in the Word. Therefore, since it is synonymous with living for God and abiding with God, it is important that I have a proper perspective of the Bible. It is important that I understand what I believe about the Bible because in the world that we live in, most Christians don't even really believe in this being the inspired, infallible Word of God. Most Christians would say, yeah, there's some good concept. Jesus is a good man, but that's not really the roadmap. The roadmap is what I think about these passages. The roadmap is what the church came to believe about those passages. But for you and I, we push through all of that clutter and we go back to the scripture and we say, this is our roadmap. This is our foundation. This is what we're going to abide in. So as oneness Pentecostals, we believe that the scriptures represent objective and absolute truth. This is not a trend. This is not philosophical uh, debate. This is not just wise sayings. We believe that the word of God represents objective. It can be known and it represents absolute truth. We believe as oneness Pentecostals or apostolics in the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture that Scripture is infallible. We believe that it is inspired of God. As Paul instructed Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 and 15, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. This will give you the manual for coming into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Why? Verse 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is literally God breathed and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man or lady of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work or might we say to produce much fruit. So we believe that all of the original manuscripts or autographs of Scripture were inspired by God, word for word, not just the concepts, even to the point of whether a word is singular or plural matters, as Paul demonstrated in his letter to the Galatians in 3 and 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and Paul is quoting the Old Testament, and to seeds plural, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, singular, who is Christ. So we believe that this is the verbal, plenary, inspired word of God. We believe that all of it, word for word, front to back, is inspired of God, and it matters even if a word is plural or singular. 
Secondly, we truly believe in sola scriptura. We begin with this presupposition that all of Scripture is relevant and that all of Scripture is authoritative. When we come to the roadmap, we don't think there's any section that can just be sliced out because it's convenient. We believe it's relevant. We believe it's authoritative. We believe it is inspired of God word for word. We believe the Old Testament is not to be ignored. It is the foundation of the New Testament. We believe in the centrality of one God declared in the Old Testament and understood and expressed by the apostles in the New Testament. We believe that the practices and the doctrines of the New Testament church are both authoritative and they are normative for the church today. The narrative of Acts is instructive. It is normative. It is authoritative. Authoritative. It's not just a history novel to be overlooked as we jump from John to Romans. Because we believe that, we privilege the doctrines and the patterns of the New Testament church. Meaning that if we have to choose, we choose the preaching and the patterns of the apostles over church tradition every single time. If we have to choose, we choose the Holy Scriptures over cultural norms every time. This is what we privilege. We don't privilege the creeds of what the church came to believe. We don't privilege what culture determines is right or not right we believe this is our authoritative roadmap for living for God and if that doesn't uh, sit with you well then ultimately we're talking about abiding in God and him abiding in us and if we abide in God then we must abide in his word so we better understand what we believe about his word So orthodoxy for us is not the creeds that the church came to believe and codified in the 3rd and 4th century. Orthodoxy for us is what did the apostles preach and teach and what did they practice. So we are the original orthodoxy. Christianity would look at you and I as one that's Pentecostals and call us heretics. Primarily because we do not accept the doctrine of the Trinity. We would look at them and say, roll. How far are you going to roll back to define orthodoxy? We don't stop at the 3rd century. Let's go all the way back to the 1st century. That will define orthodoxy. And when we look at the 1st century, we understand that God is absolutely and indivisibly one and that they understood Jesus Christ to be Yahweh expressly revealed in the flesh. Can you say amen? Amen. Further, when we examine scriptures, we believe that it it is our roadmap. As Paul taught Timothy, it teaches us what is right in God's eyes and it teaches us and corrects us in what is not pleasing to the Lord. So when we have questions about any subject and when we are confronted by any challenge, we look to God's word for guidance We look to God's word for instruction. We look to the Bible for correction. We look to the Bible for protection from our own heart. For our own heart can deceive us. And we look to the scriptures to be protected from our surrounding culture that would try to convince us that the God's word really is not relevant, that there's a new definition in every area of life. Therefore, for you and I, It is important. There are no shortcuts around what we already know. 
you and I must abide in the word of God. As Paul told Timothy, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You've got to read it, you've got to study it, you've got to meditate on it, and you've got to even memorize it. Yes, even that. So, as we approach scripture, what is it? What are the principles that guide us? One, when I'm confronted by any issue, this is my roadmap. And when I go to study the scriptures, I want to understand what did the author say. That might mean that in my 2015 Georgia English, I probably need to look at different translations because it might not mean what I think it means. It means that I'm not going to pull this verse out and look at it and base my salvation on that verse. I'm going to look at the context. What does the surrounding verses say? What is that chapter about? What is the book about? What, who's the author? What's the audience? What's the issue being dealt with? What's the genre? It might just be poetry or prophetic or narrative or history. And then when I look at that passage and I understand the context, what is the commandment I should obey? What is the principles I need to apply? And then when I see that, then I am responsible to prayerfully and carefully obey the commandment or apply the principle practically in my life. And when I approach the scripture and I follow that traditional approach of interpretation, I understand that I am dependent on the illumination of the Holy Spirit. That I, I, I'm reading it and I'm studying it and I'm desiring it, but He abides in me. And I abide in Him and He is the living Word. And so the Word in me gives illumination to the written Word that proceeded from Him. I also understand that the scripture has clarity. God intended for us to understand. God's word was never intended to be dictated by a handful of clergy who would tell us what God thought. I understand that there's progressive revelation from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And therefore my understanding of one passage must be compatible and in light of the whole of scripture. I understand that every passage is important, but God has a pattern of establishing truth through multiple witnesses. I understand that one text can have multiple applications, just like John 15 in our, in our reading tonight. And I understand that God expects me to use my mind. He designed me to be able to know Him. Stupid is not a shortcut for knowing God. God created you to know Him. You can't cop out. Nobody can cop out. Everyone can know the Scripture at some level. So no matter the challenges, and no matter the issues, and no matter the questions, and no matter the crazy circumstances that confront you and I, we look to the Scriptures as our roadmap for living a life that honors and glorifies God. The Scriptures represent truth. The Scriptures are the inspired and fallible Word of God, and they are authoritative for us today. And our worship team is coming now. So this conclusive command that I've tried to remind most of us about this evening, is that if we are to abide in Him, then we must obediently abide 
in his word. Later, John would summarize in his first letter this life-giving and liberating truth when he would write in 1 John 3 and 24, Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. We have the indwelling power of God living in us. We abide with the creator of all. We abide with the Lord Jesus Christ and he abides in us and that means that we are living and abiding in his word. And when we abide in him, And when we abide in his word, then we are empowered with effectual prayers, as we read earlier, that ask what you desire and it shall be done to you. That's not a slot machine or a lottery scratch-off card. That is a promise to people who abide in his word. When we walk with God and we abide in his word, we are encapsulated by his amazing love. As he said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And when we abide in him and we abide in his word, then we live a life that is full of joy, that your joy may be full. Amen. If you're able, would you stand this evening? There just are no shortcuts around the words of Jesus Christ. Our professed desire to be in a saving relationship with Him, our professed desire to experience the eternal life that He has for us, our expressed desire to live in the blessings of covenant with Him, those professions must be evidenced by our practice of abiding in His Word must be evidenced by our practice that this is my roadmap. And in every challenge and in light of every question and even the desires of my own heart and the questions that can swirl around, is, is this right? Is this okay? Is, is this black? Is this white? What's, is it gray? Do I have a choice? What's my options? How do I apply this? It, it can be confusing times, but God's Word gives clarity. God's Word gives surety. God's word is a foundation that we build our life upon. If you abide in me and I abide in you, then that means that you're going to abide in my life.